Welcome to BDO in the Boardroom, a podcast series for board of directors and those charged with governance. Each episode features a topical discussion with board peers and subject matter experts on both trending and timeless boardroom issues, covering a myriad of issues including, but not limited to, mitigating risk in the increasingly digital world, navigating your board career, from landing your first board seat to succession planning in support of the next generation, to other top of mind issues such as ESG reporting, shareholder activism, and the insights we share through the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Let's get started. I'm Amy Rojic, Director of BDO Center for Corporate Governance, and I'm about to share with you some excerpts from our recent 2021 What's on the Minds of Boards Ahead of Shareholders Meetings webinar. In this podcast, we highlight commentary from Tom Conahan regarding several key considerations for directors and management teams from the perspectives of institutional investors and regulators. Tom is a partner and the co-head of McDermott, Will & Emery's Capital Markets and Public Companies Group and regularly advises public and private companies in connection with transactions, including M&A, joint ventures, and private and public capital raising. Tom also serves as counsel to boards of directors, committees of the board, and individual directors and officers of public companies. Tom, perhaps you can share some of the insights and trends from institutional investors, from from your clients, and and including the significance of the annual Dear CEO letters that we all tend to to fixate around. Sure. Uh, Thanks very much, Amy. And first, let me just uh, thank BDO as we head into proxy season. It's important for everybody to get their head around their arms around all these changing rules and the the new information that seems to be coming uh coming out on almost daily basis from our perspective speaking on behalf of sort of the middle market small cap public company clients that we represent as they're getting into proxy season it's safe to say that many of them their heads are swimming right it's a ever-changing environment uh and they need to be aware not only of what the technical sec disclosure requirements are as they head into the all-important proxy season, but as obviously they need to be aware of ISS and Glass-Lewis voting guidelines, and then a plethora of institutional shareholder uh, policies and voting guidelines that can all be different. Um, And, you know, being aware of your institutional shareholders has now become more important than ever. In the last last five to 10 years, um, all companies have developed a shareholder outreach, shareholder communication plan to make sure that they're they're regularly touching their significant shareholders so that um, when it comes to getting proposals past the annual meetings, uh, there's a there's a kind of an understanding between the company and the institutional shareholders about where the company is heading on important issues. And nothing could be more, more important these days than ESG diversity issues. Uh, and those are becoming what most of our clients have been focusing on for the last three to four months as they head into this all important season. So where does it come from? It can come from uh, reviewing your uh, larger shareholders, institutional shareholders, voting guidelines, uh, trying to focus in on the one thing they all have in common. They're all to some extent different in terms of what they're expecting companies to do. But one thing they all share in common is they want to see more disclosure. So they want uh, companies to speak even when it's not technically required by the SEC rules about things like the company's policies relating to board composition and board diversity. The company's policies with respect to environmental, social, and governance issues, even including things like political spending, which you know this year has become a heightened uh, heightened issue. 
Um, and they also have to be uh, ready for uh, more active institutional shareholders, those that would submit proposals for inclusion in the proxy statement. They're happening. Um, some of our clients are getting them, uh, requesting that boards take certain actions, uh, either, uh, either in the realm of providing more disclosure or preparing certain reports on racial, uh, racial inclusion and um, kind of an audit of the company's policies on race and diversity and a disclosure of that audit. So that's happening. So they have to be prepared for uh, those proposals. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, it's difficult to try to exclude them under the SEC's shareholder proposal rules, and many companies are not choosing to try to exclude them um, for other reasons, uh, but they're getting ready for them and getting ready to address them in the proxy statement process. Um, and again, just regular outreach. Uh, so not only staying on top of the changes in these policies of institutional shareholders, but uh, reaching out to them, and especially in the age of virtual meetings, reaching out to them before the virtual meeting, making sure they're aware of all the AV plumbing that goes into it so that they can participate if they want to, um, and uh, you know, just staying in touch with institutional shareholders is clearly the most important theme of 2021. We're obviously seeing a lot going on with the SEC under the new uh, Biden administration. So maybe Tom, to follow, and up, follow up, the SEC has been recently signaling significant interest specifically in material E or environmental impacts that companies may need to be considering in their corporate financial reporting. So wondering what your, your thoughts are yeah. on that. It's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, um, there really hadn't been, the last month and a half, it's almost been on a daily or weekly basis that something new has come out of the SEC and, and, uh, and everyone's trying to adjust as quickly as possible to it. For years, there had been uh, guidance on climate change disclosure, which many uh, practitioners kind of reduced or oversimplified to uh, risk factors. Um, and it, in many cases, only implemented certain industries uh, and uh, you know, energy, infrastructure, those companies were the ones that felt most directly impacted by the SEC's previous guidance on climate disclosure. And again, where you found it most, or the focus was mostly in uh, risk factors. Uh, now the SEC has come out to say that they have uh, basically announced enhanced focus on climate and environmental, social and governance issues. And going so far as to create uh, effectively a task force. Um, the, the person within the SEC, Satyam Khanna, who's been asked to kind of lead as a senior policy advisor to the tax task force is actually a former McDermott lawyer. So uh, we're excited for the prospect of working with Satyam on that for uh, the benefit of our clients. But it's coming from two divisions within the SEC. So the Division of Examinations, which is part of Corp Fin, they've announced they're going to be focusing very closely on companies' disclosure. And the Division of Enforcement, uh, they've announced, will be uh, looking to make sure that companies' disclosure is accurate and complete and not misleading. Um, and then just a couple of days ago, the SEC put out uh, a release asking for input and comment from the market for how they should be thinking about their new rulemaking when it comes to uh, climate change disclosure. And we've had already have lots of different clients who are interested in potentially submitting comments in this process. And it's, it's, it's interesting because every everybody comes to the whole climate issue from a different perspective. Uh, and so, I think the SEC was right to put this out for comment to try to come up with something universal that can be applied in a rulemaking fashion that, um, that, that achieves the policy goals of getting better disclosure out there. 
So that's on the climate side. Human capital management, I don't know if you want me to go into that, Amy, I mean, or. or sure, I mean, that, that yeah. represents one of the most significant assets for the majority of corporations, and it's an area that really hasn't been given perhaps adequate attention within financial reporting. Um, I, I, under the prior uh, chair for the SEC, Chairman Clayton, you know, they, they attempted to rectify this through changes made to Regulation SK disclosures affected for this reporting season. So maybe Tom, you can you can pick up there yeah. and, and give your thoughts. Yeah, you're right. It's funny. So all of us who practice in this space are used to 10K form checking and making sure all the required items are addressed in a company's form 10K. And when it came to employees, it was pretty simple. How many employees do you have, and what percentage of them or portion of them are participants in unions or other collective bargaining arrangements. And that was pretty much it. And uh, when the SK Modernization Act came out, the new rules came out there, which ironically, uh, the rulemaking um, was 99% removing or reducing redundant disclosure that had just sort of creatively found its way into the SEC rules over the last 20 years. It was a cleanup rulemaking. But this is one of the few exceptions where instead of taking something out of the rules, they added something new. And what they added is pretty significant. And that is a new requirement in SK item 101 to provide disclosure on quote unquote human capital management. And um, the SEC took a principle, principles-based approach to this new disclosure requirement, recognizing that all companies are different. Industries are different. Big companies have different issues with respect to human capital than smaller companies. Uh, and so they basically wrote it, the rule in a way that provides for significant latitude on the part of companies to um, disclose what is relevant to them. So certainly what they want is material information, and they provided some guideposts on what companies should consider in addressing this new requirement. And that are things like workforce stability, um, what's their issues with turnover, uh, how do they address recruiting, um, What's the what are their issues with uh, workforce composition? Um, this is where diversity, equity, and inclusion information will find its way into the disclosure. Uh, how do they govern their workforce? How do they oversee their workforce and how it's managed, all the way up to the board level? Um, how do they ensure that their workforce has the proper skills so that they can uh, address the company's current and future needs, um, which is important as companies evolve into new markets and have new products. Uh, the SEC, SEC thinks that investors want to hear uh, what the companies are thinking about how they're going to have the workforce of the future to address future products and future markets. Um, and how do they deal with things like workforce culture as the cultures around the world have changed? Again, this is where ESG and um, issues like that are coming in. How do they deal with those different cultural uh, issues that are affecting almost all companies and certain companies more than others? Um, and again, it's, it's, uh, it's principles based. So it's whatever is material to you. They don't expect people to just make things up so that they can tick various, uh, uh, shareholder friendly boxes. Uh, they do want you to be honest and accurate. And if you're going to start including new metrics, including quantitative metrics, you have to remember this is still an SEC filing. So if you're going to start gathering information that you hadn't historically gathered in order to address this new disclosure requirement, one of the things companies are struggling with is they better be sure that it's reliable information that can be consistently presented year over year, uh, because if it's inaccurate, you, you technically have a bust in your disclosure controls and you might have misleading and inaccurate disclosure. 
the G end of the scale, if you will. So I know, um, actually, Tom, you mentioned bef uh, in your comments earlier about an emphasis on political spending. So the long-term kind of em emphasis around campaign spending that's obviously got uh, close attention in the highly politicized environment we're in right now. Um, you know, recent reactions to capital riots that are triggering, triggering all kinds of changes in, in how we're looking at things. I think other areas with respect to disclosure that people are going to have on their mind are certainly around the use of non-GAAP measures, particularly COVID-related disclosures that, exactly. you know, there have been, yeah, there have been a lot of comments on that. So, and then of course, liquidity, um, you know, emerging risks and access to capital is on the top of many, many companies' minds and obviously those of their shareholders and how they're poised to do things like that, along with, you know, the upside of, of a lot of things that there's a lot of money out there to be investing in M&A transactions. And how does that look? What are the opportunities that the company and their boards are looking at? So happy to hear some thoughts around any of those, or we can kind of take it to the, to the next area. COVID reporting, obviously, um, reporting in the age of COVID has presented many challenges to companies big and small. Uh, certainly in the early days, uh, almost all companies now are used to providing the, their results of operations on both a GAAP basis and a non-GAAP basis. That's become fairly standardized these days. And there are rules around how you can disclose your performance on a non-GAAP basis. Um, certainly in the early days of COVID, you saw most companies address the unique one-time costs that were uh, forced upon them as a result of that pandemic. Um, as simple as the acquisition of PP&E or just the extra costs involved in cleaning their uh, facilities. Um, and But what's interesting towards the end of the year is that um, surveys were conducted to see how many companies were continuing to uh, adjust their non-GAAP performance measures for COVID, and it ended up being a fairly smaller percentage than people expected. Um, possible reasons why are that uh, many companies started to believe that these costs may not be as non-recurring as they thought. This might, uh, the pandemic lasted longer than I think many people anticipated. Uh, uh, gap adjustments or non-gap adjustments are supposed to be non-recurring, unique, one-time type of adjustments. So in an, an environment where those things are, where the conditions are lasting longer than you expect, it's harder to make those arguments. Uh, and the SEC started to go after some companies uh, we saw more high-profile uh, enforcement action against Cheesecake Factory for some of their disclosure, um, their non-GAAP disclosure that uh, used uh, EBITDA adjustments relating to COVID. So uh, for companies that had maybe thought about um, using the COVID costs or COVID situation as a way to mask kind of organically decreasing or declining performance, um, there's now a lot more attention being paid to that disclosure uh, and uh, from both the SEC and from the market. So if you're a board member looking for the easiest gig, uh, you always try to get on the nominating and governance committee. Well, that's changing. So uh, all these things I think that are ESG related are finding their way to the nominating and governance committee. And it's, it is, we're seeing, adding to the length of the agendas of the meetings, the number of meetings they're being required to have, uh, and just the overall workflow uh, of the nominating governance committee. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna cover hopefully Tom fairly quickly uh, some of the more um, I guess regulatory wrappers around 
DE&I, especially from you know the board composition, as we just started to allude to. So maybe you can summarize a few of those things sure. for us. Yeah, so this, uh, California was the first uh, state to really stick its neck out on some of these things in terms of actually adopting rules that they intend to enforce. Um, this obviously got a lot of attention, back, uh, but is now it is now law. So as of uh, 2019, uh, as of 2019, it was the law in California that you needed to have at least uh, one woman on the board of your company if you were a public company with a, your principal executive offices in the state of California. Um, the, that requirement is going to tick up to two and potentially three, depending on the size of your board. And then subsequent to that bill that addressed uh, gender diversity, California supplemented with um, uh, an, a supplemental requirement to require at least one director from an underrepresented community. So that's not gender focused, it's more broad, uh, ethnic and socially uh, focused um, diversity. So, but that rule doesn't come into effect into this year. But interestingly, uh, the state has already produced the report of compliance for the 2019 year. Uh, and uh, the interesting aspect of it is uh, that half of the companies that technically would have been required to submit their report on compliance with this new gender diversity rule, uh, uh, half of the companies did not submit a report. Of those that did submit a report, most of them were able to, to show that they were compliant with the gender diversity rule. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see what happens to the companies that just blew it off, didn't submit a report. Because the rule does, as the slides show, carries real teeth. They are subject to financial penalties. And the expectation, I think, is that some companies are waiting to get fined so they can use the fine as their ticket to go to court to fight the rule on constitutional grounds. So if that happens, it'll be interesting to see how those lawsuits wind their way through the courts. So we have state regulation and legislation. And California, as you mentioned, was the precursor to this. And we have other states with a lot, lot of different things going on as well. And then we have the exchange listings. So maybe give right. us a little flavor for what NASDAQ is, is talking about. Right, so the NASDAQ did uh, publish a rule proposal. So as you guys understand this, so the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange are effectively, they're self-regulatory to an extent, but uh, rules that they adopt that, are ch that change their listed company requirements have to be approved by the SEC. So these rule proposals are with the SEC for approval. But what NASDAQ has proposed is effectively um, to require their listed companies with certain exceptions to have one director who self-identifies as female and one director who self-identifies uh, with one of the underrepresented communities. Um, and then supplement that with disclosure if you do not have uh, that board composition, why you do not have it, uh, as well as eventually to require um, kind of a dis what they're calling the board matrix to talk about the, the composition of your board members. So as we'll see on the next slide, I mean, this obviously is getting a lot of attention. Um, it's now becoming kind of a political football. Uh, there was a, a letter sent by the uh, Republican side of the United States Congress, which is obviously an agency that they oversee and regulate. Um, the Republican letter basically um, cautioned the SEC in approving this NASDAQ rule uh, on the grounds that it basically um, did not comport with what the Securities and Exchange Commission's mission should be, which is to require disclosure of things that are material to investors. Um, uh, so there's, there, there's 
that kind of political issue going on right now. Um, and then at the same time, uh, the, the Congress uh, has introduced in both the House and the Senate its own new statute that would separately require disclosure by public companies um, on the status of their directors and their senior executive officers from the standpoint of gender, race, ethnicity, and veteran status. Um, uh, that the new rule, if adopted, would empower an office of the government, the OM, uh, OMWI, to effectively enforce uh, and monitor compliance with this rule and publish uh, compliance so that the public can see how companies are complying or not complying. Again, this is a rule that's been introduced. Uh, there's, uh, it, there's been support for it. So the, um, uh, there's been support from the market. Uh, we're Business Roundtable has come out to say that they are in favor of this rule and that companies that comply with it will get to be good actors, and those that don't comply with it will be considered to be bad actors. So we'll see whether this uh, gets traction uh, in this U.S. Congress um, and, and becomes law. What's happening in this challenging economic environment with the corporate use of perquisites or perks, as they're better known for their executive officers? I wanted to get your, your thoughts here. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are still enforcement actions, uh, and it's important for people to understand um, that when uh, there is a perquisite enforcement action from the SEC, the defendants are not only the company, but also the insiders who could be the recipients of those perquisites. So it impacts more than just the company, it impacts the actual people. Um, and although the trend, I think, among companies is to decrease or limit the amount of perquisites, we're still seeing, and, and, and although the rules have been around for a long time now and have gotten pretty solid and are fairly well understood. We're still seeing companies run into issues with it. We're still seeing airplane use disclosure problems that are perking up. And I think it's becoming more prevalent in uh, companies that are in the small to mid cap range that were private for a long time. And after they went public, uh, they still had a, a, a controlling shareholder. So if you have a company like that where the controlling shareholder typically might also be the CEO of the company. Even though it's now publicly traded company, they often um, uh, they often have arrangements with the company that were okay during the private years, but become perquisites once those companies become public and often overlook them or downplay them uh, at their peril, unfortunately. Uh, so we're seeing that, and again, it comes up a lot with planes. So. Um, Smaller mid-cap companies that have CEOs with planes, there is now an SEC kind of refresh of a sweep of the market to make sure that disclosure of plane usage is being accurately and completely disclosed. Maybe you can just give us some thoughts around, you know, what state considerations there are. So take it away. Yeah, it's, it's actually been great. Last year was a nice to see moment uh, for public company lawyers because it was a global pandemic. No one was ready for it. The SEC very quickly put out guidance to make it easier to flip to a virtual meeting. ISS and Glass-Lewis, they were cooperative. Institutional shareholders were cooperative. Everybody was kind of rowing together during a very difficult year. Uh, now this year, people are expected to do it again. And you do have to go through your checklist again. Um, the focus is make sure that the meeting is as close as possible to an in-person meeting as you can possibly do it, right? That means allowing people to participate as if they were in the room, allowing people to ask questions as if they were in the room, allow shareholders who have proposals to be heard and to present those proposals as if they were in the room. Uh, that's really the focus now. State laws have come around to be more accommodating. 
the number of states that don't permit virtual meetings has now gotten pretty small and they're usually not states where people are incorporated anyway. And um, Broadridge and other the people who provide the plumbing for these meetings have gotten really good at making sure the meetings come off um, without glitches. Thank you for joining us. And I encourage you to listen to our other two related podcast episodes, as well as additional thoughts about 2021 annual shareholder meetings, as shared by subject matter experts, Courtney Keating, Ryan Hurahan, and Tom Conahan via our recently archived webinar available on www.bdo.com. Thank you for listening to BDO in the Boardroom. Past episodes and related insights are available at bdo.com slash BDO Boardroom. Or you can go to iTunes or Spotify to rate, review, and subscribe. The views expressed by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of BDO. For more information on the BDO Center for Corporate Governance and Financial Reporting and the resources we provide, visit bdo.com slash bdo knows governance.